Welcome to episode 128 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Brewers podcast, part of the MKE Tailgate Podcast Network. I'm James Langer, joined once again this week by Ryan Topp and Paul Noonan. Guys, how's it going on this sunny, very warm Sunday as we record this? I'm in great shape. Things are wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Great. I've been traveling nonstop and I'm sick and I'm not in great shape, so I balance out Ryan perfectly. Okay. My voice sounds terrible, so apologies in advance. <laughs> well, we'll try to get through it. Hopefully, you know, it's supposed to be like in the 40s today as we as we record this. So I'll, I'll probably open the windows, maybe do some grilling, you know, like fake spring things. And then it's going to snow six inches. So, you know. When are we get getting the snow? The- I didn't even see this. I don't know about Milwaukee. Madison area, I think we're looking at Tuesday, Wednesday, middle of the week. Oof. So, you know, it's that typical late February fun in Wisconsin. So I'm, I'm just going to take the warm days as we get them. And, you know, spring training starting. So I'll think warm thoughts there. Yeah, we um, were supposed to have games and then they had to cancel. Yeah, them because of rain. Rained out. yeah, <laughs> yeah. go figure. Rain um, yeah, well, then, you know, the, they're getting the uh, nice storybook start to the Cactus League season. Their, their first games against Zach Davies on Sunday. So <laughs> you get a familiar face right away off the bat. Yeah, people uh, will know the result of that by the time they're listening to this. So Exactly. Indeed. Indeed. Well, as always, you can help people find the podcast by rating and reviewing Milwaukee's Tailgate on Apple Podcast and Spotify. We are sponsored by Carbon 4 Brewing and their English-style malt bombs and perfectly balanced hop grenades. You know the great beers of Dragon Flute, Block Party, and the flagship Fantasy Factory. You can head to their taproom on Kinsman Boulevard on Madison's east side to check them all out. You can also get a deal on Carbon 4 merch online using our promo code MKETailgate at Carbon4.com. That's Carbon 4 Beer Brilliance. You can also help support our podcast network by heading to Patreon.com slash MKETailgate. Our ball and glove and above patrons get the monthly minor league extra podcast with Ryan and Brad. And if you're on the fence about signing up for that, we actually just uploaded a little taste this past week uh, with Ryan and Brad that you can listen to for free and see what you're missing. Uh, you'll also get Paul's reporting as eligible mini pods through the Packers offseason as we get closer to NFL draft season. And especially sure. the combine, which is coming up shortly here. Yeah. So, you know, we'll, you'll get all the inside info on, on who the Packers should take and who they definitely won't take. And yeah. We'll talk you know. about what to look for at the combine, too, and all of the good stat aggregators that we have for the various metrics and what's pointless. So There we go. So yeah. y- you'll be able to sift through all the nonsense as you watch a week's worth of coverage on the NFL network. Exactly. <laughs> Our patrons also get question priority here on the program and you get a personal shout out when you become a patron. Uh, we've got a lot of Patreon questions this week. We'll get to those in a few minutes, but let's start things off right away. Camp officially opened last week at the start of last week. And it's really started with a familiar topic with Mark Adonacio showing up in town, talking about something that we talked a lot about through the off season saying and uh, I guess officially confirming for the first time publicly at least that the Brewers say they operated at a or they had an operating loss last year. That word operating is doing a lot of heavy lifting right. in that sentence, right? Right. Like, so so keywords in that phrase. And I wanted to ask you guys just how much of that, if any, you're buying. Paul, you can take it away first. <laughs> I mean, none. Um, and we talked about this before uh, on the last time we talked about it, we were speculating the only way that's maybe possible is if they were doing some funny accounting with the, the upgrade to the, the spring training facility. But they basically could, I, I think I saw Hudricard confirm that's not the case. And that makes sense because that wouldn't be an operating loss anyway. That's a capital expense. Um, just So we don't have a, a full look at the books. But 
we know enough about revenue sharing to know that it's almost impossible for that to be true. We know what their payroll was last year. Um, we know what local and national revenue sharing looks like, in, in, at least in 2018. I doubt it's changed that much um, from year to year. So um, before they even take any, just before they do anything, um, they're getting in like $200 million in revenue sharing money. And their payroll was not $200 million. It seems very far-fetched that all the other expenses that they have will make up the difference between that and that before you even get revenue on there. So it can't be true. You can do all kinds of accounting tricks to make a loss happen um, and then, you know, not the next year. But it, it's ridiculous. And it, it is, again, trying to spin this as, you know, we're willing to to do we're willing to take us make a sacrifice to compete when when it's right. That's that's the point of that statement. Um, and, you know, the other point of it is we'll do a sacrifice when we can compete, but we're going to have to make it up on the back end when we're maybe not competing. Also not true. Like it. It's impossible based on what we know. If if they if it was true, they could show us their books and prove it. They'll never do that. It, it's ridiculous. Don't believe a word of it. The thing that really stands out about this to me is that they seem to to want to play this line about having lost money, but they dip their toe in the water first by sort of leaking this out to Hottercourt earlier in the offseason and letting just kind of these questions fester. And it wasn't until early on in camp when Mark Antonazzi was actually there, that they got him to go on the record and say this. And then, like we talked about, the, you know, this idea that it was an operating loss. Well, what does that mean in practicality? And like, as Paul has said, as we've, we've all been talking about, there's a lot of different ways to, to do your accounting and to show a loss if you want to show one. If that's your goal is to show a loss, then that's what you're doing. I kind of was thinking about this a little bit this week, and it occurred to me, and I put this on Twitter and got some agreement on it, that this kind of represents Mark Antanasio has been very, very savvy in his tenure as Brewers owner. He has done a lot to cultivate goodwill, going back to, you know, coming in and immediately signing Ben Sheets to a long-term contract pretty much right away. Like, that was one of the first things he did, uh, doing the Ryan Braun contract and then making Ryan Braun a brewer for life with that second deal. That won him a lot of... Uh, applause by keeping guys around by, you know, giving long-term deals or at least extending deals to people like Giovanni Gallardo, Ricky Weeks, Corey Hart, basically everybody but Prince Fielder in that first core that came through. So he's built up a lot of goodwill, even things like the Braun Bucks. Remember that when Ryan Braun was suspended and they gave out money to people like 10 bucks Mm -hmm. for every person that came in. He is really... I think betting some of that right now, and I don't know how much of that goodwill necessarily he's betting, but it's a it's a decent amount <clears throat> on basically David Stern's ability to uh, massage the roster in such a way that like they can still contend and compete. And yeah. like a lot of this talk, if they end up winning 95 games this year and rolling to a division title, nobody's ever going to remember this. Like it will be down the memory hole, basically. Well, there's there's another half of the story too that's that's not exactly on field baseball related, which is the impending end of the sales tax. Um, and right. This is if you followed the local coverage at all, this has started to crop up. Um, there was a a ridiculous study that the Journal Sentinel published um, from I don't I forget who did it that said that could claim the Brewers generate two point five billion dollars in local revenue. Um, or have over the course of a certain amount of time. Atanasio actually dropped that number in that interview, so they're relying on it on that end. Um, they would, I think, 
well, pretty clearly like to extend that tax so that they have free maintenance and free upkeep and all that jazz. Um, and they're, they they kind of put down, you know, rumors of a new stadium in that interview right. a little bit, but he also mentioned it and, you know, that's always setting up for something. Um, there are, there are starting to, there's some rumblings across other teams in baseball that new stadia are coming. So a, a lot of this is also setting him up and the team up to make a push for more public money for one reason or another, which as we all are, we all know as savvy listeners of this podcast, the financial benefits are greatly overstated by baseball teams to the community around. Yeah, I highly recommend the uh, website Field of Schemes if you want to read more about that. Like they go through and talk about how uh, the numbers that are used to justify public financing of stadiums, especially, are usually just bunk. Like they are vastly, like Paul said, overstating what the benefits are. And we've already seen like. Texas is the first stadium of that new generation, you know, starting, you know, in the 90s. Right. Texas is being replaced. Now there's extenuating circumstances there because they decided not to put a roof on that thing when they built it and that never should have happened, but they mm-hmm. they are putting a roof on the new stadium, so that's something at least. But I know Arizona has been agitating and they are potentially looking to put a stadium on tribal land and have it be financed that way. Instead of, you know, having so much of it come from the public money. Uh But yeah, I mean, we're already looking at teams, stadiums that went up basically in the generation that Miller Park went up. Right. As being fodder for replacement talk. So it's coming. We just don't know when. Turner was already replaced in Atlanta. That's true. uh, Turner's already dead. Yeah. Turner was only four years older than Miller Park. Yep. And it's already gone. Yeah. I mean, we're already seeing this and it's. It is very annoying, but it's also, you know, this is part of the deal when when they can get this public financing of stadiums, when it's set up as a precedent, because in that last round of stadium being built, I think only one, the San Francisco Giants stadium was privately financed. Everybody else at least got massive amounts of public subsidies or tax breaks or whatever to help. Yeah. And, you know, you'll see what will happen with the whole Tampa Bay, Montreal situation, too. That's still that's an ridiculous. issue that yeah that's still an issue <laughs> that's being debated on and it'll probably continue to be a threat to move to Montreal as long as the the lease in Tampa continues to run out so you know that i think everybody's mind kind of jumps to that stadium talk once you start hearing an owner cry poverty well whatever whatever the reason the opening day payroll is is starting to look like it'll be about 18 million dollars less or so than it was last year which conveniently is about as much as Yasbani Grandal made um <laughs> and Grandal's the only the only person that Mark Adonacio personally name dropped as somebody that they would have liked to brought, bring back so yeah. that's kind of interesting too turns out that payroll number will now include a new signing Brock Holt signed a one-year deal with an option for 2021 because, again, of course, everybody David Stearns is signing has an option for next year. He'll end up making a little bit more than $3 million. Taylor Williams was DFA'd as a result, ended up being claimed by the Mariners. Ryan, we'll start with you. What do you think of adding Brock Holt to the mix, and where exactly does he fit in? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting, the timing of it, because on one hand, you could probably look at the fact that they – knew they were going to have kind of an extra spot to play with, with Luis Urias probably not being ready for opening day. I know he wants to be, but I think they're probably going to be cautious with him. So there's a good chance that that's going to be the spot that he'll at least occupy to begin with. 
and then they'll have to sort it out from there as they go. And it was also interesting, Paul and I were talking about this a little bit before we started to record, the idea that, you know, this came, what, three, four days after the Josh Hader thing was announced? Now, that probably yes. doesn't mean much. No. I It probably doesn't, but it's also, it is interesting timing that they that they did that right after they won about they that amount of money. extra million. Yeah, yeah I mean, it was exactly. like two and a half million that they, they saved off of that, though. They probably weren't expecting to lose the Josh Hader hearing either, would no. be my guess. So... Yeah, it's he is definitely a an extremely interesting player, and it's it's weird that he waited this long because he was a good player out on the market. I think I I clearly think he's better than say um, Eric Sogard, and maybe that's you know not absolutely fair to Eric Sogard, but no, I it's think, fair. I, I think he is better than those guys, and he was on the market. I think he was waiting for Boston, frankly, and sure. Boston just never because he by all he, accounts he's very popular in Boston. Um, and I've seen a lot of Red Sox fans, you know, who have been just kicked repeatedly this offseason already, right. like kind of being like, OK, last straw. I'm now officially mad at my team for not bringing back, you know, Brock Holt, who I like, who didn't even cost very much. Right. Mookie Betts was one thing trading yeah. away a generational talent. But damn it, you gave away Brock Holt. <laughs> I'm done. Yep. So now we get that. So we have the uh, the Steve Holt memes and all that for the year. So that'll be fun. Yeah, great. most important thing Big about win that for story. everybody. Right. But yeah, I think he, he does fit offensively, especially uh, great on base guy. I'll, I'll let Paul go into that more, but it's he does. He's a, a very good fit. And defensively, it looks like he is competent to maybe even slightly above average at second base and third base. Yeah, so yeah. right. He could play a lot of positions and play them not poorly. So it, it's a little hard to tell because you're dealing with very small samples. So you you just kind of have to extrapolate from small amounts and defensive stats are tricky anyway, even worse in small samples. But it is something to sure. say, at least it looks like he's a pretty decent defender at multiple infield positions. And I know he can play the outfield as well. So though, I don't know how much room they're going to have for him there. But yeah, Paul, sure. you wanted to talk more it, about the offense. It's nice, it's nice. He has the versatility, um, which they, of course, always like. Um, I, I mean, I look at this as someone who doesn't like their third base options. And so my, I mentally just slot him in right over there. And he, he seems like just a prototypical, like Miller park pickup. He, uh, he, he has fairly substantial platoon splits, especially lately, if not for his career, but you know, guys get wider over time. Um, and he hits righties pretty good last year, especially he did. Um, in re so small sample size, one year platoon split doesn't mean Jack, but, um, he OPS 832 against right-handed pitching last year, um, and he had a 394 on-base percentage. He is a good on-base guy. Like he consistently has gotten on base um, for his whole career, even when he's been down a little bit. One of my big problems with a lot of their their additions this year, like Jerko, like Healy, um, they're really right at the bottom of an acceptable on-base percentage. Like they give you good power, but if they fall off a little bit, like a little bit less contact, a little bit less discipline. They become worthless pretty quickly. Not so with Holt. Um, you can kind of count on him to get on base at a 340 clip and much higher than that against opposite side pitching. So it um, seems like a very useful player. Fits the park great. Um, fits one of their, I think, roster weaknesses um, very nicely. So um, that's, I think, a nice, good late signing by, by Mark. Big fan. He's basically a really good Hernan Perez, right? Like, <laughs> he can fit in just about anywhere. He can hit for a, enough power to be dangerous, and he actually gets on base, whereas Perez never really did that, right? Oh, yeah, so. bats left, so that too. Right, yeah. 
So, um, you know, I, I think, yeah, it's, it's hard to be too upset about it. And yeah, I'm with you guys. It's a little weird that he lasted this long in the off season. Like, why would you jump to Eric Sogard right away? If you knew Brock Holt was going to be available. Yep. Um, again, I think he was, he was wanting to go back to Boston. He was, that's true. This is a lot of this is like, Hey, Boston are not behaving like this is Mark jumping at an opportunity a little bit too. Of right. Like, you're, look, look at what your team is doing. You know, come play, come play over here. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's a very Sternsy signing in, in that he's taking advantage of a situation somewhere else to, you know, take advantage of an unexpected opportunity. So yeah, it's, it, it's hard to, to argue too much with that. I know maybe losing Taylor Williams on the DFA. It's a bummer for some, that maybe still hoped he could be a solid bullpen piece, but you know, never really put that together. So, yep, that um, would be me. I'm, yeah. I'm the one. I mean, Taylor Williams is replaceable bullpen fodder, but I mean, he did have another year. They, he was granted an extra year, an extra option. So he was going right. to be able to be sent up and down this year. And the Brewers love running that carousel. And he seemed to be at least kind of okay with it though. You do have to wonder maybe if he is now better off in a place where maybe he won't be shuttled up and down so much and get like a solid chance to be in the bullpen on like a daily basis and get a little bit of a rhythm going. Cause I think he always was put on that shuttle and it, it probably did impact his performance. So sure. Yeah. It's definitely not ideal. He just never could find that control either to really take that next step. It's, it's one thing to have the, 95 mile an hour fastball but if you can't locate the breaking pitch the walks were always a problem yep yeah he got hit around a lot so kind of seems clear that the brewers kind of saw him as at the bottom of that bullpen depth chart so to speak yeah see, i mean i think ceiling for him was always reliever anyway and he's not managed to even you know he, he obviously flashes the velocity but um there's so many other guys who do what he does but better even in the organization still it right. happens. He's still like I wouldn't write him off as like you know he might still develop. He, that's totally possible. But there's a lot of guys like Taylor Williams out there. Not, yeah, right. he'll probably have a good season at some point. Like he's going to have yep. one of those years where, and hopefully for him it'll be right before free agency, and he'll get to cash in and make a little bit of money off of it. So yeah, but reliever performance right. is so variable, and he does have basic tools that can help get him. You know, I think. You, uh, at least having a decent season at some point. I don't. I don't know if the Brewers will miss an average reliever all that much. I'll say that now, and the bullpen will be trash in June. But we'll we'll see how that goes. <laughs> also, fitting into that bullpen mix, we we briefly briefly mentioned this last week, uh, talking about the Josh Hader arbitration stuff. But Brent Suter avoided his arbitration hearing, signing a two year deal. Uh, he'll make about 900000 this year, one and a half next year, so he doesn't have to go through this again. Also, lots of incentives included in there. Kind of a nice feel-good story for a late-round guy from Harvard who doesn't throw hard at all. You know, <laughs> kind of proved to be a very valuable asset in the bullpen. Um, I guess, Ryan, what do you think about Suter, at least knowing he's going to stick around another couple of years? So the interesting thing about this to me was that the Brewers are – among most MLB teams at this point who are called file and go teams in arbitration, meaning that once the figures are exchanged, that they will not do negotiation on a one year deal. Like they will not continue to negotiate back and forth on a one year deal. And it was pointed out to me on Twitter that 
this doesn't fit that criteria because this is a two-year deal. Two-year deal, yeah. So he had to do a two-year deal to have this happen. So there is like an exception to this idea of filing and going. File and go is a strategy that teams use to keep costs down. It is to get players to uh, come in with their kind of lowest reasonable amount that they're going to do before they file. Because at that point, then it goes to a hearing and teams have done pretty well, though. I, I should point out this week, because you guys talked a bunch about arbitration last week. Yeah, this right. week, it swung back the other direction quite a bit. A lot of player wins this week. All Convenient. Right. Yeah, yes. it, and people have pointed <laughs> this out on Twitter that like this tends to happen where one side will get out to a big lead early on, uh-huh. and then you'll have a bunch of it sweeping back the other direction. Yep. Did you point right. that out last week, Paul? Is that where I didn't? But it's a funny thing that that happens. Yes. Funny, huh? Yeah. I think the interesting thing too was was that Archie Bradley ended up uh, winning his case, and Josh. H- it was something weird with Archie Bradley and Josh Hader where they ended up making the same, and it didn't seem to align. But anyway, <laughs> um, well, I mean, you look at like people look at Edwin Diaz got more than what Josh Hader got. And Diaz oh, is that's what it was. Yeah, terrible. Diaz season. was horrible last year, and he ended up making more. But those those sweet sweet saves, as Brad said last yep. week, it's all about saves and arbitration. That's yep. true. Because that's, I mean, they're just looking at very specific things and yep. going off of that, and it takes time for things to go back. Now they did; it did get disclosed this week, though. I think we have a question about it, so maybe I'll, I'll wait for that about Josh Hader's arbitration hearing. Oh yeah, we that did get a question about that, so we fact. can we can. Not at all surprising, but we can jump yep. into that in a couple minutes here. Yeah. So, yeah, I, you know, it's is nice to see Brent Suter get a little guarantee. And also maybe he's one of those that, you know, figured the, the hearing wouldn't go in his favor. So maybe why not sign that two-year deal as well? Yeah. The other big thing coming out of the start of spring training as position players reported, uh, the Brewers actually kind of backtracked on what they said was going to happen in the outfield earlier in the offseason when they signed Avasil Garcia. Uh, the initial feeling was that they didn't want to move Christian Yelich out of his right field spot. He'd been fine there. And obviously you kind of acquiesced to the MVP, so to speak. Uh, but as the players reported to camp, Craig Council kind of walked that back and said that Yelich would be moving to left field. Garcia will be spending most of his time in right. And that means we also get the return of Ryan Braun playing a lot of first base in spring training. So, you know, a lot of moving pieces here, but I think ultimately the consensus seems to be kind of the best thing overall for team defense. Paul, would you agree? That's yes, I I would. Um, I I like that they did that first. Do do you guys care where they play in the corners that much? Uh, Would like, I, I know that like most positions have very specific things about them. Like at second base, you have to be able to make that turn. It's not the same as shortstop, even though it's a little bit easier. But like right. playing playing right field versus left field, like catching the ball, that it's pretty much the same thing. So yeah, um, I think I remember Braun kind of um, not complaining, but you know, talking about why it would be different. You know, okay, I guess the ball fine. slices a little bit differently, but also you know, Braun likes to get share his thoughts on his positional movements. Pretty he shares, so. he shares a lot of thoughts on yeah. such things, but but Garcia is much better fit in right. Like he is a prototypical right fielder. He has a laser for an arm. He can make the throw over to third, um, and it doesn't make sense to play him at left in Yelich in right. Yelich is fine, but he it does not. It's not one of his strong suits um, making that throw, and it like it doesn't really matter which side you play on that much. So it. Uh, I'm glad they made the move as long as everybody's fine with it. It is. It makes them better defensively. Not a ton, but a little bit. Um, so, 
So Brad's totally not fine. here this week, but to open up his conspiracy corner a little bit, is this a kind of a sign to Ryan Braun saying we're going to do this, that Yelich is going to go to left field? Is this a sign to Ryan Braun that, hey, uh, you know, you don't like playing right field that much and we need you to play first base. So go <laughs> go get to first base and play more there because we we know that uh you know he like you said he has expressed discontent with being in right field before it's not his strong suit i think the arm thing does play more there and it it exposes that weakness in his game a little bit more than it yeah. does in left field mm-hmm. so uh, well i don't even think that's a conspiracy i mean braun no longer has any leverage with the team um right you can you don't have to care about what Ryan Braun thinks anymore because if you don't play Ryan Braun, it's not that big a deal. So um, you can you can make this move, and you know the effects will become clear to him very quickly. That either play where you're slightly uncomfortable, or you are not better than the guys playing in front of you. So have a seat on the bench and pinch hit. Um, that's fine. That you should not acquiesce to Ryan Braun at this point. It's his last year, right? Basically. I mean, we, we kind of decided it's his last year in Milwaukee anyway. Um, I think to his defense though, he did seem at least more open to playing first base this year than he did the first time. I think maybe to Paul's point, he realizes that's how he's going to get playing time. If he gets playing time this year, it's at first base. Kind of joked. He had to find a glove because I guess, uh, he wanted to use Mike Mustakas's old mitt, and Yasmani Grandal stole it, or something like that. So he's got to he's got to uh, find a new mitt to play with. Uh, maybe it's with his passport. Um, <laughs> but you know, it'll be again. We'll we'll have a, a spring full of seeing how Ryan Braun does at first base. Um, just so Paul's favorite Justin Smoke doesn't have to play as much, maybe. <laughs> um, it all but yeah. Out. I, it all worked out. And I think, you know, I was kind of thinking out loud on this. I have no data to back this up whatsoever. So maybe you guys can jump in. Um, but my my thinking is um, by making, you know, with, with the launch angle revolution and everything, is infield defense sort of more overrated now and outfield defense is more important? Because, um, you know, it looks like the Brewers have built this team where the infield defense could be considered shaky as be- at best, but the outfield seems to be in solid shape, especially with this alignment. Yeah, I think uh, that that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. I, we know that outfield defense has been prioritized somewhat. You've seen uh, some talk of second base kind of moving behind left field on the defensive spectrum in some ways, because in terms of its importance, because second base can now be so manipulated in terms of where you position the person that right. they're, they're kind of given like an easier task now, whereas left field can be really important because they do get a bulk of balls over there. There's a lot of baseballs hit in that direction. And so we've seen some of that, but it's, I don't know, like this I think has more to do with the fact that these were the players that they they added when they got Yelich and Kane. They got really good outfield defensive players. And I don't think that was a non-factor. Like they clearly wanted to get good defenders in the outfield when they brought those guys in. But I think right. it's also just kind of a byproduct of that decision, which is now a couple of years in the past. Yeah, just with strikeouts elevating, I think is a bigger deal than actually people hitting the ball to the outfield more. There's just fewer balls put in play, and with with the sophistication and shifting on the infield, like it, it's not that it doesn't matter, but it definitely matters less than it did ten years ago. And they're so good at putting guys where the ball's going to be hit. Like range doesn't matter. I, I think the one that maybe matters most on infield is. The shortstop 
just because he has to cover so much of the non-shifted sides so frequently. But that right. being said, like balls are hit there so infrequently, he's mainly there as a bunt deterrent more than anything. So um, I, I think it's probably true that 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 infield defense probably isn't um, all it's cracked up to be anymore. Like you don't want to be butchers at it, but you can do so much with position and strategy to make uh, you know slightly less competent guys look good there. It, that's that's just you might as well go for bats. Like right, why not? Yeah, that's the downside. And I think the Brewers have kind of shown uh, shifting to be a strength, you know, as long as the throws aren't errant to first base too many times in the case of RC and Hira. I think if you clean that up, you know, yeah. you can you can hide a lot of deficiencies. It was just kind of an interesting thing that popped yeah. in my head. Like, when, does does when, anybody think they were bad with Moustakas playing there? Like, no, that's bot- the thing. Like, right, every, he'd botch a double play every now and then, but like he was mostly as good as any other second baseman. Right. Well, it took him some time to adjust into it. I think he had some struggles more at the beginning of the season. And then as he was getting better, he moved over to third base because Shaw was because out. Because of Shaw, yeah. And yeah. Hero coming up. So we didn't get the full Mike Moustakis experience. It's going to be interesting to watch that happen in Cincinnati, though, with Suarez out to start the season there. He'll be he, back. He'll be back. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just interesting to see. Yeah. And I think. You know, especially with with fewer balls being hit in a play, even turning double plays isn't that as important as it used to be, I think, years ago. So uh, it's kind of interesting to see. I think a lot of the worries about the Brewers defense overall might prove to be a little overblown, but we'll see. And again, I'll be biting my tongue in June, I'm sure. Turning to a different topic now, uh, another week, another standings projection. Uh, This time, the, the Fangraphs zips standings came out and they're a little bit more than the Pakoda projections, which I think we all could have kind of gleaned from the individual projections. Uh, we talked a lot about it the past couple of weeks, Pakoda projecting the Brewers for about 79 wins, only about a 20% chance for the playoffs. Uh, Fangraphs a little bit ahead of that uh, has the Brewers right around 500 at about 81, 82 wins and a 31% chance to make the playoffs. Um, again, the, the big lesson here being that nobody in the central really has a clear path to the playoffs. Uh, Ryan, is, is this a little encouraging to you to see at least the, the division so kind of tightly packed <laughs> together there? Oh, heck yeah. Like I'm, I'm all about this. This is a better number. So I'm going to, of course, spend more time on this number than I am on Pakoda because Pakoda is worse. So this, this yeah. makes me much happier. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this is, if you look at what the playoff odds are in the central, they have the Cubs winning the division with over a 50% chance to make the playoffs overall. And then the Reds, Brewers, Cardinals, all kind of packed in there with, you know, Cubs are at 51.7% to make the playoffs, Reds at 34, Brewers at 31, Cardinals at 25 so basically, they're saying that it's a big jumbled mess and it's going to have to get sorted out over the course of the season. This is not the the Dodgers out west where, what was it, Pakota had them with like almost 100%? 99.9%. Yeah. Like, it's not that. Like, this is going to be a rumble. But we knew this was going to be a rumble, right? Like, we this yep. is not news. Like, we knew that this was going to be this way. It was last year. It took a long time for that to sort out. We had three teams basically go down to the wire with the Cubs bowing out very late, but they were still in it up until like two weeks left in the season. They were ahead of the Brewers. So, you know, right. Yeah, they were. 
it takes time to I'm, sort it all out and we'll just see where this all goes. But it, I think it is also a little bit instructive that if you look at what this is and you think about like what other moves the Brewers could have made, maybe except the grand all thing. And, and I do think it was significant when Mark talked about that, that he brought up grand name. That might be their big regret that that seems to be. We've talked about that a bunch on here, that that seems to be kind of a mistake that like the timing of that didn't quite work. And if they had it to do again, they they probably would be more aggressive on Grandall to bring him back. But if you look at basically any other move they could have potentially made this year, would they have materially changed their chances to win the division? Because Grandall's maybe worth, you know, three, four wins on top of what they did. But other than that, Anything else they could have done, other ways they could have spent that $20 million or so that they cut from payroll, is there anything they really could have done to have drastically changed these odds? Probably not without increasing payroll, no, and get getting yeah. like a big splash trade kind of thing. So, no, not really. I mean, getting Grandall back would have been would have been it. I mean, that's a top, top, you know, top 10 player in the league that they don't have. So, it, right. I mean, we should minimize that because he's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> but, yeah, that would... There's nothing bigger than than Grandall they could have done, and that. But they also seem to recognize that that on they some do. level the Grandall thing sure. seems like they they feel like they kind of maybe Whoops. screwed that up. Yeah, uh-huh. right. And I think that kind of maybe validates in a way the the idea that maybe it was just a lot of money and so soon in the off season it was literally what days after the World Series that that signing happened. I don't think they were expecting that to happen that soon. And uh, the idea of spending that much money right away up front in the start of the winter may have been kind of unappealing um, because then you don't know what you have to work with to fill all those other holes that they did still have to address. Yeah, true. So, yeah, I, outside of adding Grandall, I don't know. You know, even with him, what are you looking at? Like low 80s wins on this projection. Like that doesn't substantially maybe bump up their chances in the playoff race. Yeah, I mean, at most with add in like three, four wins for Grandall because then they don't make the, the Narvaez trade and all that. So make that right. make that substitution out. It's probably worth three to four wins. And so they're probably second behind the Cubs or basically That's probably true. Co-leaders yeah. with the Cubs, but you know right. it's a small it change for a lot of right. money. It doesn't it's not gonna push you over that fifty percent likelihood to make the playoffs in all likelihood, right? Like um so, you know, it was a little bit of that kind of risk assessment, I think, going on, too. Um, but still, I think the the main takeaway from all of these projections, Pakoda zips everything, um, is that nobody really knows what's going to happen in the division, right? <laughs> so it's it's going to be, it's going to be, I think that's the main takeaway. It's just kind of like, as I've said, and I think, Paul, you've mentioned in previous weeks, it's just like a giant shrug emoji. Yeah. Like the projection system is like wants no part of trying to actually pick a winner in all of this. Well, and yeah, and when you get down to teams that are this close together, it's impossible for any projection system to definitively say anything because that's just where random luck and injuries make the determination for you. I mean, the Dodgers can be absolutely crippled by injuries and probably still win their division without too much trouble. Not the case here. Like, little things can make a big difference in the Central. And no, no, can't predict that. Can't predict baseball, as they say. As they say, Uh, we actually have a lot of good listener questions to get to this week. And a reminder, if you do want to send us a question for the podcast, you can do that in a few different ways. You can follow our podcast network on Twitter at MKE Tailgate and send us a question there when we send out our weekly call for questions. You can also follow all of us individually and ask us questions there. Ryan is at RD Top. 
Paul is at Badger Noon, and, and I'm at James L. That's James with a Y. You can also email questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or follow our MKE Tailgate Facebook page and send us question there. Uh, starting with our Patreon questions, Jay Google, frequent question asker through Patreon. <laughs> Thank you, Jay. Kind of bringing up that infield mix again that we touched on a few minutes ago. He's asking when Luis Urias is healthy and back on the 25-man roster, who are going to be the 13 position players that the Brewers take with them to Milwaukee? And are Orlando Arcio and Ben Gamble the guys that end up going back and forth from the majors to the AAA because of that? Uh, Paul, you want to take that first? Uh, so, yeah, and I suspect the answer is Arcia is the first guy to go back. Um, just because once they have Urias, they have a lot of guys who can play shortstop now. Um, Sogard can slide over there. They want Urias to play it. Um, and unless Arcia comes out just like a ball of fire, like having fixed a lot of issues, he's probably going to be the one who shuttles. Whereas Gamble, um, I mean, the outfield looks crowded, but... He is the only really competent center fielder after Kane. I know sure. can theoretically slide over there, you know, once in a while, but you don't want that a lot. Um, he, he's he, he's okay, but he's not a great center fielder. So and and Kane is the most likely outfielder to actually require rest. So I, right. I think Gamble's going to be on the roster, kind of no matter what. Um, if the only way I'd see him going off is if they get some other guy who can play center fielder, and I don't see that uh, happening in the near future. So. Um, Arcia is your number one a shuttler to start off the season once Urias is back. Um, if he sticks with the team, it will probably be because of some kind of injury elsewhere. Um, that, that's how I see it shaking out. Sure. Uh, Ryan, how, how are you feeling? Uh, what's your bench? I guess we shouldn't call it a bench situation because uh, the Brewers are now kind of getting like uh, the initial outgetters. They're calling everybody the position player group. Nobody's on the bench with all these platoons. How do you see the position player group shaking out? Yeah, I mean, I think that it is. Jay is right here that the two guys that really could go up and down are Gamel and Arcea because they're yep. the ones that have options. Keston Hura does have two options, but... You know, that's not going to happen. If he if he gets sent down, then things are bad. Right. right. Some some things have massively gone bad at that point. Yes. And then Omar Narvaez is a guy with three options, and that's not going to happen either. Because, again, if something happens there, then things have really gone wrong. So. Right. Or Jacob Nottingham has become like a superstar out of nowhere or something. Like, right. Something completely unpredictable has happened. So, not so, going to happen. Right. So. Yeah, it, it, those guys would be the ones to potentially go up and down. I think that Brock Holt might make Ben Gamble a little bit more expendable because Holt can definitely go play in the outfield. So it, I think that it could actually, instead of being Arcia, it could be Ben Gamble just because there may not be playing time for him in a way that there potentially would be for Arcia. That's all contingent on Arcia actually kind of getting his act together this spring and showing that he's at least like a positive on one side of the ball. Like he needs to show that he's either gotten better offensively or gotten better defensively. He's going to have to show something like that. But if he does at least show some, some basic improvements there in spring, then I think that it is quite possible that Gamble's the one who gets the, at least initial uh, ride on the, uh, the San Antonio express. So we'll see, but it, I think that there's the possibility there just because Holt does offer them more in the outfield than any of their other guys, you know, previously would have. I guess Sogard played some there out last year, but. Well, they have they have plenty of outfielders. I, 
between, right. between Braun and Kane and Yelich and Gamel and um, whoever I left whoever I left out. Like I don't know, is Holt going to materially impact that? Um, I, corner outfield certainly not a problem. Like, do you, how much center field do you see like Yelich sliding over to do? Probably not much. I think that they right. talked about Avisil Garcia doing that. So we'll have to see. That's going to be an interesting yeah. thing to watch in camp right. is That'd how much fun. time does he get in center field? Because he right. can run. His sprint speed numbers he's on fast, yes. He can run. Yeah. Um, but he's also really, really big. And I think it gets it he takes some time to get going. And I sure. you know, like a big part of playing outfield and especially playing center field, like as well as say Lorenzo Kane does, is getting a good jump on the baseball. And that's something right. that you get because you know, you have you've spent years and years and years working on that and like developing that that intuition and that sense. And right. that's right. not something you can just expect like a guy to pick up. So right. it takes time. If Garcia yeah, if Garcia is playing center, it's the in the screw it hit dingers lineup that we might see every once in a while when they need an offensive boost or something like that. It's um, Wrigley on a day the wind is blowing out or something. You know? Sure, sure. Small park. You don't have to run too much. Yeah. Uh, kind of in the similar vein to this conversation, bringing up Luis Urias and the and, and Brock Holt in the infield mix, uh, Darren Jones asking us on Patreon to rank the following infielders in order of how many plate appearances you expect them to get from most to least. So your four options here are Urias, Eric Sogard, Jed Jerko, and Brock Holt. Who gets the most plate appearances? Who gets the least? Yeah, I think that Jerko is down at the bottom because he is a guy who crushes lefty pitchers, and that's the short side of the platoon. And there's, you know, so I think that he probably gets the least of that group. Sogard then gets more than him, so he would be second in that group because he's a left-handed batter, so he's going to pick up more that way. Then it gets more difficult. I think that Holt is a better hitter than Urias, probably, but Urias is going to be playing shortstop, presumably quite a bit, and I don't think that you make that move to get him unless you are planning on giving him quite a bit of latitude to like try and you know potentially fail at the position. So I'm tempted to go with him because I don't think the injury is going to be long-term, but we, we don't know that for sure yet. So I, I think for me... Going from top to bottom, it would be Urias, Holt, Sogard, and Jerko. Yeah, I have that the same, as long as Urias is healthy. Um, I, I agree with all of that logic. I think Jerko both has the, the platoon problem and uh, the potential for being kind of bad. Um, both of those pretty high. Um, I, I maybe, maybe I could see Sogard playing um, more than Holt just because he does have a little bit more positional flexibility on the infield um, and in a in a situation where shortstop is a problem, he will probably get a good number of abs there. Um, but uh, like overall, I still agree with that. They'll give Urias every chance to be, um, you know, the star they think he might be able to be. Um, uh, Holt slides into a position of weakness over there. Good for the park. Sogard will have plenty of plate appearances just because of versatility and um, also being a lefty. And then Jericho down at the bottom, the uh, short the short man out. Well, and you sure. could see a situation where. Sogard becomes the everyday shortstop, or at least yep, that's most possible. days shortstop by the end of the year. I don't think that would happen in the first half. I think that's something if Sogard's having a great year and both Arcia and uh, Urias are struggling with the bat, you could see Sogard getting more and more playing time over there as the year progresses. So, Sure. I guess at least for me personally, I, I'm i a little bit higher than Jed Jerko on most people. I'm on team Jed Jerko doesn't suck. 
I think you go back a, a couple of years, throughout last year because he was hurt all year. Um, go back to about two years ago. He wasn't great for the Cardinals, but he's still uh, kind of roughly in terms of war what Mike Moustakas put up a couple of years ago too. Like the, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but the numbers are surprisingly not too far off. Obviously, Moose with a little bit more power. With that said, as, as much as I want, the jerk store to work out. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm kind of with you guys just on on the terms of which way they bat, you know, him being the short end of a platoon, most likely, unless he gets absurdly hot. I think he he would end up seeing the fewest. I actually think Brock Holt probably ends up getting the most plate appearances out of that group, uh, just based on him filling in at third, short, Second on a here a day off that kind of, you know maybe even he plays some first base if or when Justin Smoke goes up in smoke <laughs> and Ryan and uh, Ryan Braun doesn't really take that position you know yeah. um, I just feel like he's the, he he's the prototypical utility guy who could end up basically getting full time player plate appearances just by playing somewhere different every day so I I would probably put Holt first Uriah second Sogard third and Jerko fourth. Another Patreon question. Chad Fairs is asking, I guess, maybe more of a minor league context. What are you looking for from certain players to let you know that they're ready to move up to the next level or maybe even the majors and contribute? Is it new pitches, better location, more discipline at the play launch angle? Uh, Ryan, what what are you looking for when you're looking for somebody to kind of move up and take that next step? Well, I think it it varies very much depending on which player you're talking about. Everybody has weaknesses in their game and things that are going to hold them back from taking the next step, whether that's moving from uh, rookie ball into full season ball or moving from uh, a ball into double a or making the jump to the big leagues. Everybody has a different thing, but I think he's hit on some things here that are really important Uh, guys when they on the pitching side, when they add a new pitch or develop like a mechanical tweak where they can get the ball more consistently in a location that can often be just, you know, unlocking something and boom, all of a sudden the player is much better than they were previously. And on the hitting side, it is often guys need to show that they've developed sort of a sense of pitches. Pitch recognition is a big thing beyond just like basic plate discipline. Recognizing big league stuff is important. And, yeah, I mean, I, I guess launch angle in this time period, like that could be something too. If guys working on a swing change and that unlocks something, that can be something that does drastically change what their outlook is. But it really does depend on the individual player and like what their shortcoming is. And that's what teams are going to look for to see, you know, okay, you need to fix this thing about your game and then take the next step. I agree with basically all of that. I would say, uh, the thing I look for on uh, especially Super 2 players is if they uh, need to just work on their defense a little bit and learn how to get a button down for a few weeks. And then uh, <laughs> and, and, and that, that's really what I focus on. Uh, I, I want to be in the front office someday, so I, that's what I, I've learned to, to go with. But no, R- Ryan's right on all of that. Like, uh, um, It's different for everybody. You know, There are certain sort of minimum things pitchers need to fit in starting rotations and developing that for that and you know a certain amount of control um, with you know, velocity on, on relief pit, uh, you know, if they're sliding into relief pitching, most of it is just seeing uh, as they develop, how they are able to implement those tools against increasingly better competition. And, you know, we don't, we don't scout off of stats, but um, once you see some sustained success in the level that they happen to be hitting in um, and, you know, it's not fluky or, you know, just dominating based on age or, um, you know, when they get to that level right before the majors, that's kind of what you look for. Like, 
you build the tools, you test them, and then once they pass the test, you move them up. Um, it, really kind of as simple as that. Um, player development is just assessing, you know, what they need um, to, to actually fix and what tools need development. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. And it's crazy how much better Eloy Jimenez got at defense once he agreed to that below market extension last year, right? Yeah, they, they sent him down and, you know, suddenly his defense Look, improved and they brought him up and conveniently he signed a below market extension. So. Incentives work, people. You got to put pressure on these guys to get better at those things. Yeah, this exactly. year that would be Evan White with the Mariners. He all of a sudden yeah. did a big <laughs> jump forward when he signed his his deal. So yeah, he'll probably be up exactly. pretty close to it's, right away. That's fun. Another Patreon question. This one from Devin Bearwolf. Kind of making a football comparison here. So, Paul, we'll go to you first because you're oh, the great. football guy. He's bringing up the Houston Astros and kind of comparing them to the New England Patriots post-Spygate. His question is, what do you think are the odds that the Astros will pull a Patriots and just blitz the heck out of the league after being kind of uncovered as cheaters? Maybe not necessarily win the World Series, but win way more than enough to shut up all the critics and laugh in their face. Well, pretty high. Um, just like the Patriots, the the Astros are still very good. Like all those players they're are extremely talented. Ridiculously good, yes. Yeah, they're still just a stacked loaded team. And while I, I, I do think cheating materially impacted their ability to win, um, they're still like a 95 plus win team without right. any other help. So um, they probably will run rough shot over their division. They'll probably make the playoffs. They are certainly still World Series favorites. Um, and I shouldn't shut anybody up because uh, there's only so much you can impact in baseball by doing something like that. I mean, what's the what's the highest level of war that cheating in that capacity could be? Like two, three, um, maybe. So like, you know, that's nothing. That's a that's a blip of luck. Um, it, that team is uh, stacked in the front office as well, or was. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, you know, one of the reasons they did the cheating is because they do all of these things to maximize their ways to win as completely as any other front office in baseball. So right. this will barely hurt them, but no one should discount it because it doesn't hurt them. The whole goal of it was to get a few extra wins out of it, not to, you know, go from an 80-win team to a 95-win team. So, right. Like the Patriots, um, who also are awesome and destroy everybody to pay no attention to the fact that the Astros are still good. We know that it's not a surprise. Yeah. I think that that's exactly right. I would not be at all surprised if they went on there. We're going to show them us against the world, you know, all the, the stupid cliches, like, uh, if they went they're on already that sort of, playing the victim. Yeah. yeah exactly. They're already playing the victim and they are going to get some help. Uh, have you guys heard this, this discussion now because MLB is so going to be so aggressive about them getting hit. Uh -huh. And policing that, that now they are going to teams are probably going to have to shy away from pitching them inside, which right. means they're going to get the ball more out over the plate than they probably would. Otherwise, we'll see which, how hey, all that works out. Yeah, yeah that's funny. That's funny. Annoying. Yeah. Uh, you know, they cheated to know where what kind of pitches were coming. And now they at least know where the location is going to be. So they know what pitches are coming in a different way. Yep. I do appreciate the irony of that, though, because all these pitchers who've come out and have been talking tough and insinuating that they were going to do stuff and whatever. Well, now they're going to be on the defensive when they do face the Astros. Those guys are going to be the ones everybody's going to be watching them. And anything that they do, if a pitch gets away or whatever, everybody's going to assume nasty intent. So yeah, they've actually right. by doing that, they've actually 
put themselves in more of a bad position than the Astros, which is, you know, there's a sort of delicious irony to that. But uh, <laughs> really, the, the thing about this is, overall, if you look at the, the Houston situation, and I agree, Paul, completely that they're not going to lose that many wins from it. The one thing that you could see happening in Houston would be like this cascading effect of like guys getting off to slow starts and then pressing. And you could see some of those things happening maybe on individual basis. Yeah, you could. Right. And you could also see potential conflict and whatever. And I think that was a big part of why they brought Dusty Baker in, because if he is good at anything, and I think he is, you know, he is, he's definitely not the guy who shredded arms in the early 2000s with the Cubs and whatever. He's not that guy anymore. But right. They brought him in to be a steady hand and a steady leader for them to try to keep everything kind of on the rails. If there are clubhouse issues with people getting mad at each other over, you know, fallout from this whole situation that that can he's that's why he's brought in is to smooth that sort of stuff out. He is the steady hand. So I think that a total nightmare scenario for the Astros where they like everything kind of falls apart on them. That doesn't seem as likely either. I think they're probably going to be, you know. A, a very good team and probably run away with the West, right? Like yep, that probably. seems likely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, I don't see anybody really taking them down in the West. I think the, the issue will come up when they, you know, face the Yankees or the twins, you know, because the, the entire point was to kind of get them over the hump and, and get those extra couple of wins that they needed to. So yeah, I, I don't think we'll be, seeing them get tested that much until later in the year. But I think Ryan's point is a really good one. If there's a crisis of confidence early in the year, it could, the PR thing could get away from them at least. Um, and as we've seen, the Astros don't handle PR disasters very well. <laughs> no, they're a little bad at that. They should, uh, they should get some of those guys in their farm system. So next time this happens, they're in better shape to deal with the press. They are, <laughs> they are remarkably bad at it. Like, that really just goes to show you how like an insular environment where it's us against the world, like how bad that can work out in non-sports terms, like, you know, outside of the on the field thing where it seems to work well, like it, in PR, that's not what you want. You don't want a, no. we're going to bunker in and we're going to take on all comers. No, that's not your job. The funniest thing is Jim Crane did hire a crisis management PR firm before they all reported to spring training, and they still this is the best idea they came up with. Can you imagine like whoever that <laughs> that liaison or whatever from the crisis management firm Goodness. talking to yeah. Crane before he goes up for that press conference, and then them watching him <laughs> in that press conference? Can you imagine what was going through their mind? Like uh, I uh, am just like totally screwed here. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Consultants, man, they they get to give the advice and then they get another blowback and don't deal with repercussions. Right. So it's a good gig if you can get it. Another uh, Patreon question from Jay Google. He's asking uh, specifically about the Brewers facilities down in Arizona. Uh, this is, you know, kind of a full year now after all those renovations at Maryville, uh, the what is it? American Family Fields of Phoenix, or whatever they <laughs> called it. He's he's wondering: are are those new facilities helping or going to help the Brewers with the whole spring training process? Ryan, we I think we kind of saw some of that, or at least a lot of the talk last year. How do you think it's it's going to kind of help in year two? I mean, the stuff that we would see if we go down there and are walking the grounds is not the important stuff. Like it yeah. matters. It's good that they're doing the things that are going to make it a nicer place to sit and watch a baseball game. That's great. Like you need to do those capital improvements. But what really matters here is them 
building up facilities to help their players get better. When they created the pitching lab, the hitting lab, and outfitted that stuff with the technology and the staff to help m- implement those ideas, that's where you're really going to see something. And But that's going to happen behind closed doors. We'll hear about it. We'll hear that Corbin Burns went down there and spent a bunch of time there. But we won't exactly know how much of that you know, came from that or something else or just he just matured and grew up or whatever. We don't know exactly what that's going to be, but that is going to be the the more impactful side of this by far. Yeah, um, that's that's right. It, it just allows them to keep player development helping along at an actual, you know, st- state-of-the-art facility, um, not lose time where people could be down in their various minor league facilities or the big league club doing that. Um, it, it, they should have had it up to snuff probably a little bit longer ago than they were, but it is all the stuff behind the scenes that we can't see that, that really matter. It They'll probably increase their revenue a little bit from it, which is nothing to sneeze at. Um, they can charge more for the gates when it's a nicer place to see a game. They can up prices a little bit, but yeah, it, it's a, it, it's a, it's a, don't, don't understate it. Like they spend a good chunk of the year in spring training, just on a percentage of time basis and being able to, you know, stack this development time on top of itself every year that goes through, builds up over time has right, you know, creates better players, quicker development. Well, and this is a big part of the minor league reorganization that's been pro- yeah. that's been kind of thrown out there is teams want now their young players before they start sending them out to full season ball. They want their rookie leagues in their home area so that they can have those guys have access to more coaches, more technology for helping with things like development and being able to make that sort of the centerpiece of their organization. Like I think we probably, we think of Milwaukee as being like the center of the organization. (laughs) The players probably see Arizona as a much larger piece of that than what we realize because Mm -hmm. it's a place that they can go year round and it's, it has these things like, especially having all these coaches around because that's where a lot of coaching is based out of is that area. So, right. Yeah. I think you, you saw that too. When pitchers started to come to camp, the reporters coming in, asking questions to everybody they saw, uh, they see Eric Lauer come in, one of the new additions, kind of like, you know, first question you ask him like, Hey, what's, what are these facilities like? You know, how does it compare? And he straight up said, Oh, I've been here all winter. Like he lives in Arizona. Like he's been doing work at that facility all winter. And I think that's where you see it too. Like the players live in Arizona, a a lot of them. Um, So that, you know, it's not like spring training report days come and they just show up unless you're Zach Grinke who just reported like yesterday. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, you know, like these players have been going to work literally all winter at this facility. And I think that's kind of the value that you see there too. Um, so kind of like what you guys are saying, it, it's a lot of the behind the scenes stuff and it'll take, um, you know, a couple of years to really see those results, but, um, it's, it's not like they just show up in February and jump in there. So yeah, it, it, it's definitely an asset. And I think Ryan's point too, about the, the decreasing the minor leagues, I think a lot of that too is rooted in wanting the pitchers to throw less too and spend more time at pitching lab as opposed to wasting bullets, so to speak on live batters and increasing injury risk that way. So I think that's an aspect of it too. All kind of fits together. Uh, Jay, another question this time through Twitter, he was all over, uh, wanted to get his questions in, but this is a really good one. And, and, um, something that we 
didn't really bring up when we were talking about the Josh Hader arbitration battle last week. We focused mostly on the numbers and the arbitration process itself. But I think also something that was kind of rumored but not really confirmed until Ken Rosenthal confirmed it uh, through various sources. He Jay is asking, are you guys surprised that the Brewers brought up the Hader tweets and his his past with that in the arbitration process uh paul we'll give it to you <laughs> so i i did i mentioned this as a possibility a few podcasts ago when, when right uh, before the big arbitration uh, one last week and I, i'm not surprised that they brought it up uh, my, my only question as to whether they would or not is kind of if they were allowed to i know that there's some focus in there um as has been pointed out this week there is sort of a a character clause if you will um sure it is part of it and you know, once you're allowed to do that, like it's it's a reason to pay him less, so they're gonna bring it up. It, he is damaged goods. It hurts his marketability. Um, it hurts his you know his ability to go out into the markets and get money later on. Not that that matters in arbitration that much, but th- yes, they're they're gonna bring that up every single time anybody does it. Um, if it saves them a, a couple million dollars, which it helped them do here, so not surprising. Those things are already bad drug out. They brag on people and. Hater shouldn't have been surprised. He should have known that going in too, and I'm sure he is by now used to having that brought up to him. So, it, and it, it sounds it, it, like he was ready for it. He he yeah, knew right. that that was coming, and it also Rosenthal also in that same blurb reported that it was not by any means the heart of the Brewers' case. They no, brought no, it right. up. It was it was mentioned, but it was a side issue to the bigger thing, which we talked about was the saves. Right. Saves. Yeah. Right. Also, I think a distinguishing factor was it wasn't the organization itself making that argument. It was the third-party lawyer that they had hired. Yeah, that was interesting, that. right? So, that they hired somebody They outside. tried to distance themselves from so, this, too, though. Just but. R- real quick, that's nonsense. Um, <laughs> you hire, you hire sure. a lawyer that the lawyer represents you. Um, sure. There, there is no you know, disembodied other party that's trying to rag on Josh Hader to save the The evil money. lawyer did it. Yeah, yeah no. That's, yeah. Not how, that's not how this works. Um, you're in charge of what your lawyer says. So, Well, uh, yeah, and you know, they were the ones who prepared the case. Like, they wouldn't, you know, bring, yeah. like, the, the research and whatever that was done to do to go into arbitration. They were sure. responsible for that. The lawyer may have been the one actually making the case, but it's not without their feedback. So, yes, yes right. it's, it's bull. And, but again... This is this is a weird thing. I'm conflicted on this. I was thinking about this quite a bit, actually, driving home from work that day. And I was thinking about it. And on one hand, I am not sympathetic to the idea that the brewers can use it to save money. That's like kind of sleazy, right? Like the idea that the brewers could save money on what they have to pay Josh Hader based on him having this history of saying these things, that's gross. But the flip side of it is, I don't have any problem with Josh Hader losing some money over it. Like that doesn't bother me. So it's like if there could be some way where you would know like how much money this was or how like whatever impact and the arbitration is not set up to be able to know this. So it's an impossibility. But to be able to somehow have that money go someplace other than the brewer's pockets, (laughs) it would be nice. Like if you could give it to people doing good work in terms of bringing awareness to these issues that would be the ideal but you can't have that but i know happen it's not no. the system is not set up right. that way you can't and yeah yeah i have no problem with him suffering some financial consequences for it it is just a fact of life that he is less marketable player than he otherwise would be because of this like he he might be like a face of mlb if if not for this in his past like right he's super dominant he has a very distinct look 
um, he actually has cost himself materially with when those came out. So, like, yeah, um, I have no issues with any of that. The Brewers should use it against him. Sure. Yeah, I think I, I think you're going to have a hard time finding anybody feeling too sorry for him, especially since he still walked away with $4 million. Yeah. I mean, um, Aubrey Huff was probably pretty mad about it, but... <laughs> no one cares what Aubrey Huff thinks. That is that's a good rule of thumb for just life in general, including the San Francisco Giants, apparently. But yeah, I think I think it's an example of nobody's really feeling sorry for Josh Hader. It's just the question of whether a team should be allowed to do these kinds of things to knock down a player's price, but also completely unsurprising, uh, you know, considering the championship belt type antics of arbitration, like they're going to use everything that they can to absolutely knock down a price. So um, kind of a, a. icky feeling to all of this for lack of a better word but totally within the system that they've kind of built for themselves right so yeah it, it it'll be interesting to see if if that keeps harming him going forward i think to to paul's point it's definitely hurt his marketability you know i don't think he could go become a member of the new york yankees and become like a face of anybody here but well they did employ all this chapman and very uh, true yeah him, so that, kind of. that that's true they can avoid things if they want to um same thing with houston (laughs) um uh, another twitter question here from kip faircloth asking uh what are your thoughts on the rotation this year um i know we're kind of planning as we get through spring to kind of do a deeper dive on these position groups but uh just kind of uh top line results or thoughts here ryan i guess who what are your thoughts on the rotation what's it going to look like out of camp who's going to be good and who's going to bust well, I think as long as nobody gets hurt, my five coming out of camp, my guess at that would be Woodruff, Hauser, Lindblom, Lauer, and who am I forgetting? Brett Anderson. Brett, Brett Anderson. Yep. Thank you. That would be the five. Uh, now, could Corbin Burns or Freddie Peralta pitch their way into that? Potentially, but it would be more likely that somebody else pitches their way out of it or gets hurt. So sure. I think that's the five that opens the season. And where it goes from there, you know, we'll see what happens with guys like Peralta and Burns, the improvements that they they think they have made in the offseason, if that's able to be turned into something that works in the rotation. So time-wise, we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, uh, that's the five I have. But this team will have like eight to ten starting pitchers over the course of the year. And um, I, I... there's a couple of those guys who could potentially bust out pretty easily. Um, we talked about Brett Anderson a bit last week. I don't really trust him. Um, Brad didn't trust Hauser. Um, I, I don't trust Lindblom that much, and I'm not sure about Lauer either. So um, I could <laughs> Is see there that, anybody beyond Woodruff that any of us really trust? Well, I trust Hauser, but <laughs> sure, sure. Um, but it's very easy to see a situation where the rotation is almost completely turned over outside of Woodruff, like halfway through the year, like if. Now, Peralta takes a step forward. Like he'll he'll be in it quickly. He he is some of the best stuff in the organization. Um, like it, it's easy to see Suter getting another chance to start as well. Um, in certain situations, and you know I I don't think we, any of us really trust Burns. We just hold out hope, but he again potentially is better than a lot of those options too. So um, I think that's your five. But I've if I I would put like a zero percent chance on that five percent or that that five those five people being the rotation at the end of the year. And I'd put like a 10% chance that they're the rotation at the middle of the year. I think um, 
this turns over a lot and there's a lot of in and out and flex here. Sure. I think they kind of learned a lesson last year. Not that they didn't build a lot of depth last year, but they're just trying to kind of mitigate as many possible disasters as possible. You know, knowing how many of the guys in the mix kind of have warts and trying to get ahead of that as much as possible. So you don't have to try to hope that Gio Gonzalez is available halfway through the year. Um, <laughs> so I, I think, yeah, to the point that they've got eight to 10 guys who could fill in and be okay. I think that's kind of the idea here. Um, I'm just kind of interested to see who they sacrifice to the opening day gods because that has not <laughs> gone well the past couple of years. Uh, Yoli Chassin ended up getting DFA'd. You know, Jimmy Nelson got hurt. Like, so, you know, maybe they throw Josh Lindblom out there or something and, and have the, the karma eat them up and then they'll be good for the rest of the year. But um, like I said, we're going to get into a lot of these, uh, you know, rotation talks and, and specifically about the pitchers in a couple of weeks here. So be sure to be tuned in for that as we get closer to the start of the year. Um, another Twitter question I got from Brian Polakowski, uh, kind of noticed all the pictures, you know, you, you get the pictures when people show up to camp and the brewers are actually, instead of wearing like, you know, their typical warm up gear, they're wearing their full legit uniforms, uh, this year. So, um, he was wondering why they were f- wearing full uniforms for bullpen sessions. And it turns out, I think it was Hodge Court or somebody said, they just like the look of them. I think everybody's kind of so excited about the the new <laughs> threads that they just wanted to wear them right away. Like, right. why wait until the start of the year? So Wait, um, who's excited about them? The players or the, the players, people that yeah. are outfitting the players? <laughs> I don't, no, I think I think it was the players. I admittedly didn't read too much into this. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, it's a sharper look. It's... I think a couple other teams, I think like the Cubs and the Yankees, you know, always wear the pinstripes in spring too. So, you know, it's a nice sharp little look and kind of gives us a little preview. So basically that's it. And I'm still mad about the crappy spring training hats, but we had that rant a couple weeks ago. I mean, I thought guys always kind of wore, I guess they had like spring training ish uniforms that they wore, but I mean, people weren't out there, you know, Rick Vaughning it with no sleeves and no hat. So, like, it wasn't it wasn't like they were, you know, ill dressed before. But I guess this is a little bit new. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It is just like one of those little quirky things. Obviously, it doesn't matter. But, you know, Brian was curious and and we we got the answer for you because that's the service we provide here at Milwaukee's tailgate. (laughs) So a lot of questions this week. We want to thank you for all the questions. And as a reminder, uh, if you go to patreon.com slash MKE tailgate, sign up to become a patron. You do get question priority every week. We'll be sure to tackle those questions first. Uh, Make sure we get to them in case we run out of time. Um, And again, you know, as I mentioned, patrons at the ball and glove level also get the monthly minor league extra um, as well. And, you know, we talked about the little teaser that Ryan and Brad Put up, uh, I guess, Ryan, do you want to just kind of go over what's going to be coming up in that minor league extra with the teaser that we posted? Yeah. So in that teaser, we were talking with uh, Jeffrey Paternostro from Baseball Prospectus, who's their lead prospect guy. And he kind of Brad started by asking about like where the brewer system is overall. And then we talked quite a bit about Bryce Terang. And that's where I cut it was at that point. So anything after that, we went on for another 40-ish minutes after that talking about other players. But we really got in like a deep dive into Bryce Terang and like specifically what his power potential is, because that's going to be the big defining thing for his career, because the rest of it kind of seems to be there. 
but how much power he's going to be able to hit for is going to define how good a player he can really become. So we went into that kind of a deep dive looking at like, what does it mean that he has like average power in batting practice and that doesn't show up in games? Like how can he convert that over? So we really did kind of a deep dive into that. And I would highly recommend listening to that. We do have somebody lined up. I don't want to jinx it, but we do have somebody lined up for March as well. Big name uh, that people will definitely want to check out. And we'll probably do a teaser for that as well. If you'd like to become a, mem- a Patreon member at the ball and glove level, so $5 a month, you do get access to the full minor league extra every month as well as Paul's uh, Packer things, which will be coming out. I'm assuming <laughs> what does free agency start like in a few weeks? The big thing coming up is the the combine. Um, so we'll have a, a mini pod at least on that fairly soon. And uh, we'll have a regular one in the next couple of weeks as well. Sure. Yeah. So all of that stuff, as Ryan mentioned, only get it by going to patreon.com. Five bucks a month. So that's all it costs. Um, and speaking of our patrons, we are also, again, doing our fantasy league and patrons also get for first go at that so if you want to take a shot and beat me at fantasy baseball it's not that hard but if you want to feel good about beating one of the guys you definitely will so go to patreon and sign up for that as well we will have more details in the uh, next week or two i think coming up on that fantasy league so be sure to stay tuned for that anybody who is at the ten dollar a month level is guaranteed a spot in you will be guaranteed a spot after that we will move down the priority order to people who are five and less and last year i think we were able to fill out all people who are interested at that level but it's not guaranteed we will make sure anybody who's doing ten dollars a month is guaranteed in so well there you go so all those reasons, go to patreon.com slash MKE tailgate, go and sign up and be sure to be looking for those details in the coming weeks. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Pocket Casts, anywhere else that you listen to the podcast, please subscribe. And while you're there, please leave us a review to help other people find the podcast. Uh, so thanks again, everybody, for listening this week. We're looking ahead to the first week of spring training games here. We'll have plenty to talk about from all of those. In the meantime, go ahead and look for us next week here on Milwaukee's Tailgate.